Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on the prophets, specifically the book of Daniel. And here we'll be going over the first bit of Daniel chapter 2, the first Aramaic section of Daniel. We are still working our way through a series on the tabernacle with Alistair Roberts over on our YouTube channel. So take a look at the show notes. We'd love for you to head over there and subscribe and keep up with our work over there on YouTube. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. and We hope that you really enjoy this conversation over this passage. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bijan discussing Daniel chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James Bijan, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background monitoring the recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing over everything so that the uh, podcast can get out to you. We are just at the beginning stages of a series in the book of Daniel. This is part of a larger series in prophetic literature. We did an opening episode on prophecy in general, the phenomenon of prophecy in the Bible. And then we spent a few weeks talking about the book of Jonah. Uh, And uh, two weeks ago, we entered a discussion of the book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel, and have covered kind of a general overview of Daniel and then uh, the first chapter of the book. Uh, Today and next week, we're going to be looking at chapter two and discussing that first Aramaic section of Daniel. Uh, Just a few preliminary comments to get us started. We we noted last time when, or the, the first uh, the first episode that we did on Daniel, we noted that it's a book that's spoken in tongues. There's a section that is Hebrew. The first chapter and a few verses are in Hebrew. And then the last several chapters from chapters 8 through 12 are again in Hebrew. But the middle section that we'll be looking at today, beginning on uh, in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2, when the Chaldeans speak to Nebuchadnezzar, they speak in Aramaic. Uh, and from that point until the end of chapter 7, the book is written in Aramaic. And so we have that uh, separate section and we talked about the, the reasons for those two, those two languages existing in the same book in a previous episode. We also noticed that this section, chapters two through seven kind of functions, is organized chiastically. We have the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter two that we'll be talking about today and next week. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, chapter seven later on, which matches with chapter two. Uh, it's a vision of Daniel, but it's covering the same period of history and the same sequence of empires, but in with different imagery. Uh, chapters three and chapter six match up. Both of them have to do with uh, faithful Jews who resist decrees of the king to worship false gods uh, and uh, are delivered from punishment. And then in the middle, we have chapters four and five, which have to do with the contrasting uh, Babylonian kings, Nebuchadnezzar, who humbles himself before the Lord after he's humbled. And then uh, uh, Belshazzar, who refuses to humble himself. So we have the chiastic structure running through chapters two through seven. Uh, But I think it's also worthwhile to notice that uh, this this section splits really in half. Uh, The first part of this section, I'm talking about chapters two through seven. The first part of this section is a series of events in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, all having to do with Daniel and his three friends in relation to Nebuchadnezzar. And we have uh, Daniel interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar here in chapter two. We have the uh, the fiery furnace in chapter three with the three friends refusing to bow to the image. And then Nebuchadnezzar himself speaks in chapter four and tells the story of his own uh, humbling at the Lord's hands and his recovery from that. Uh, that's the first half of this section of, of Daniel. And then chapters five through seven hang together. Belshazzar is the king in chapter five. We move into the Persian Persian Empire in chapter 6 with Darius, but then we return to the Babylonian period with the vision that Daniel sees that takes place in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. So the last three of these chapters are framed by references to the reign of Belshazzar. Uh, and it's uh, part of part of what's happening in these this first half, the, the Nebuchadnezzar section, is a sequence of events that have to do with Nebuchadnezzar himself. He begins in this chapter, he receives a, an interpretation of his dream from Daniel, and he honors Daniel's God as a God who reveals mysteries. In the next chapter, he's going to be opposed to the 
three men he's going to throw them into the fiery furnace because of their refusal to bow to his image. But then at the end of that story, when the three men are delivered from the fiery furnace, he confesses or, or he, he issues a decree that um, the God of Israel should not be blasphemed. And then in chapter four, after he's humbled and reduced to bestial, uh, bestial life for a time, uh, then he has this personal confession about the Lord's, uh, the Lord's sovereignty. Uh, and one, one thread that's running through that is the, the imagery of the hand. Uh, in chapter two, uh, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that everything has been placed in his hand. The Lord has placed everything in his hand. Uh, in chapter three, he warns the three men, uh, no one can deliver out of my hand. He's talking about the power of his hand. Uh, but then finally, at the end of chapter four, he confesses the supremacy of the hand of the Lord, the God of heaven, whose hand can't be stopped or stayed. And so that 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 the the variations in the use of that motif of the hand kind of trace out the development of Nebuchadnezzar's acknowledgement of the Lord, and the the this first half climaxes with the king of the Babylonians confessing the God of heaven, confessing the God of Israel as the one true God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. No one can ward off his hand to say to him, "What have you done?" So you have that. You have a progression in the way that the Jews are dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, but you also have this progression of Nebuchadnezzar's own confession of the God of heaven uh, in these in these opening chapters. As soon as chapter two opens, it seems that we get this unusual chronological detail. We're told it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, which seems written deliberately in order to jar. I mean, we've, we've been told that there was a three-year um, training course in the previous chapter, and so um, and that's not like a necessary de- detail for the chapter to work. And the second year here isn't particularly necessary either. And so, um, uh, I've got the odd thought about what might be going on. So um, I could share my ideas, and you could tell me I'm wrong, or or, or you could just kick off yourself. We, we want to hear your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> target practice um well we might be able to reconcile it by referring to the accession year mm. um principle of numbering years of a person's reign but that doesn't really give us the answer to why there might be significance in having the jarring detail hmm. i mean my, my i get idea of float out is 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 this i mean we know that eras are sometimes used in Israel's own reckoning of time. Not often, but on the odd occasion it can be shown in, in kings and in various other stages. And it does seem very much as if Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem has begun a new era in Israel's history. That's the whole point of the chapter and why you've got this colossus that appears later on. Israel is plunged into this new sphere of its existence. And the whole idea of Nebuchadnezzar having this regnal year in scripture is a very interesting one like from the time of the exodus onwards israel's clock if if you like is is reckoned just internally um you get dates grounded in the exodus and then in israel's kings um you get a whole raft of foreign kings mentioned you know hazael or hadadiz or tigath pileser and so on never with any years attached to them you know israel's history is timed internally um, and here with Nebuchadnezzar and towards the end of two Kings, of course, and Chronicles as well, um, all that changes and, and you suddenly get Nebuchadnezzar entering the pictures w- with these sort of regnal numbers attached to him. And from then on, um, there is just this complete sea change. So then on in Israel's history, we don't get any years to do with say Nehemiah's governorship or Zerubbabel's or anyone else's like that. We get sort of Darius, Cyrus, etc. You know, so the Israel is in this new time reckoned by Gentile um, emperors, and so it strikes me as possible, at least, that this could be playing on that, and this could basically be the second year of some sort of conquest um, of Nebuchadnezzar's, whether that's the same um, era of the exile that Ezekiel uses in five ninety seven or, or later in five. 87 i don't know but i think it's possible to read it as um yeah in in an era-based way like that that makes a lot of sense to me um so uh, as much as i'd like to use you as a target for target practice and i'm gonna i'm gonna agree with you that makes a lot of sense to me Uh, you do have a new phase of israel's history 
And I think, you know, Jesus talks about the times of the Gentiles. And we, when we read that in the Gospels, we usually think of times of the Gentiles somehow beginning in the time of Jesus or after the time of Jesus. Uh, and I think that uh, what we're looking at in the Old Testament really is a phase of Old Testament history that is the times of the Gentiles, when uh, Gentiles are the ones who put their stamp and their names to particular periods of time. Hmm. Yeah, and for um, this to be part of the Israelites' sacred scripture, as James just said, here now you're numbering years according to the reign of the king of Babylon. I mean, one of the key questions that any pious Israelite had to be asking at this time is, what in the world is God's doing? Is God doing what's what's happening to our world? What's happening to us? Uh, what's happening to all the covenantal promises? And so, one of the big things that's answered in this chapter is, is a really kind of you know simple, obvious thing: is hey, the Davidic heavens and earth have been dismantled. There's no more Israelite king. Now the people are under this imperial pagan government, um, but. Wait a minute. Hold on. Um, God is at work in the great pagan imperial court here, and he controls these kings, and they're his puppets, and the history is in his hands. Um, and so uh, so now here is what you're supposed to do. Daniel kind of shows you an example of how you're supposed to speak up when you need to speak up, to offer wisdom, to offer advice and guidance, uh, to interpret things for your pagan rulers. But in the end, um, God is the one who's in control of all of this history, not just Nebuchadnezzar, but the uh, three other imperial powers that will follow him. Mm-hmm. Right. Alistair mentioned the possible or the issue of exactly why this is mentioned, this particular um, timestamp. And I, I've wondered if the idea of a second year might be to elude Bobic quite subtly, just to um, Herod's time and when he kills all the infants two years and under, which is, again, another sort of slightly unusual um, chronological detail. Um, If you think about this text and Matthew chapter 2, there are quite a lot of parallels. You have these wise men from the east come. You have um, the arrival of worrying news from the king's perspective, you know, and and the, um, the palace flies into chaos there's a massacre that begins and a consultation with um palace employees and so on and um i, I do wonder if the sort of the idea of a, a second year and herod massacring all the children under two years old might be significant um in both men's life basically something arises that is a threat to their reign um this dream seems like it uh, signifies the collapse of nebuchadnezzar's kingdom um at least as it is at some point. And um, the birth of Jesus it signals the end of um, Herod's position as king of the Jews. Yeah, one, one connection that you could make that's in the background of both, I mean, early chapters of Matthew are playing off of Exodus themes. Herod is a new pharaoh slaughtering the infants. And there's a, a Exodus themes going on in, the, in Daniel chapter two as well. Uh, Daniel is in a position like Joseph, obviously, interpreting the dreams of a Gentile king. Uh, but he's almost also in the position of Moses because he's contending with the sorcerers and the magicians of another uh, of a Gentile power, as Moses contended with the ma- magicians of Egypt. So um, the, that would the, you have that kind of triadic. The Exodus is kind of a source of the um, that's in the background of both the Matthew two passage and the Daniel two passage. And there does seem to be some inversion of the typical pattern where the wise men we'd associate with the magicians of Egypt are actually coming from the east to find the newborn king. And as it were, the magicians that would, or the figures that would correspond with the magicians of Egypt are actually the authorities of Jerusalem, the scribes and the mm-hmm. Pharisees right. and others. And so it seems that we've got things turned very much on their head. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we mentioned this in one of the previous episodes, but the the chronological marker at the beginning of chapter two is also important. It's set, set in the context of the overall conquest of Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, the second year of Nebuchadnezzar is long before Nebuchadnezzar finally uh, destroys the walls of Jerusalem and destroys the temple, which means that the elevation of Daniel uh, and his three friends is taking place 
uh, almost two decades um, before uh, Nebuchadnezzar is attacking Jerusalem. And we, I, I'm pretty sure we talked about this in a previous episode, but that puts a different coloring on uh, what's happening in Judah, what, Nebuch- what Jeremiah is doing in Judah and how he's prophesying to the people of Judah. It puts a different coloring, as, as Jim Jordan has pointed out, on how people would have regarded Daniel in his own time. Because Daniel is a part of the administration of a, a an empire who is now destroying uh, his own uh, the capital city of his own people. You know, it'd be like um, some some Christian figure that is in the in the uh, in a high position in a, in the Chinese government as the Chinese invade the U.S. and take and and take uh, over Washington D.C. That's the kind of that's the kind of position that Daniel's in. But that that chronological markers, you you can match it up with the chronological markers at the the end of 2 Kings and see that this is, again, long before. So the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar that he finally comes and destroys the temple and the wall and uh, uh, the final deportation of people from the city. We mentioned the the sorcerers uh, and the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans linked up with the sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt. I think it's significant that there are four categories of those advisors to the king, and that sets up a kind of symmetry between the old advisors who are impotent to advise Nebuchadnezzar. They can't tell him the dream. They can't tell him the interpretation. Uh, And then you have a fourfold um, on the other side, the fourfold of uh, Jewish advisors and counselors and wise men, Daniel and his three friends. So that that, uh, the numerical uh, contrast is, is operating there. The lists of figures also um, maybe anticipate the sort of almost parodic list that you have in the following chapter, with a sense of these vast array of fig, all these all these different types of figures can't actually solve the problem, and the listing of them in this almost exhaustive fashion underlines that fact. Question here is whether Daniel is classed as one of these figures or whether these are subgroups within the wise men more generally. Well, it doesn't seem that he was in the first consultation uh, when when the king meets with his advisors, uh, beginning in, in verse 2. You have this uh, lengthy dialogue between the king and, his, and, uh, and the magicians. Uh, but Daniel is, uh, uh, is, is evidently not there, because when the order goes out that all the wise men are to be killed, Daniel... Uh, Arioch finds Daniel, and and Daniel is informed about the matter from Arioch that in verse fifteen. Uh, so he doesn't know that this decree has been issued. So uh, he's um, he's among the wise men who are going to be killed. So he's already he's already in some kind of position of advising the king, but he isn't among those who are standing before the king at the beginning of the chapter. It's um it's pretty rough, really, isn't it? He's not given a chance to interpret the dream but he's going to be killed for not interpreting it anyway it's, um, yeah how do you all take the um the the demand of the king uh, um nebuchadnezzar asks uh for the sorcerers magicians not only to tell him uh, the interpretation of the dream uh, assuming that, that he has provided the contents of the dream but he tells them to tell him the dream itself. Is this uh, Nebuchadnezzar forgetting what he dreamed and needing to, he's troubled by it, but he can't recover what he was troubled by. Uh, Or is this a kind of test for the magicians? If he gives them an interpretation, then they could, they could kind of suss out what he's, what he's, what the dream means without really being able to interpret it. Uh, They could, they could find a clever interpretation uh, and he's testing them to make sure that they are actually telling him, a true interpretation that's been revealed to them. So, uh, or is there some other explanation for him asking them to tell him the dream as well as the interpretation? I mean, I think there may be a few things going on here. One interesting detail just from Babylonian history is that about this kind of time, there was a lot of um, suspicion developing between um interpreters in the king's palace um and particular particularly stargazers and and the like and kings you know there was um a suspicion that the stargazers were were basically just kind of 
making things up. And um, you can see this reflected in different Babylonian records. And so the idea of him um, actually having a test um, kind of fits quite well. Um, something else to bear in mind here, I think, might be the nature of an interpretation. Now, typically, I, I guess we think of an interpretation as, as just exegesis, like explaining what a vision means. But um, that's not what the Babylonian cognate of the word means. And um, I think there's good reason to think that that Babylonian sense might be present here. Um, like in, in Babylonian texts, when you give an interpretation, you don't just explain what something means, but you show how it can be negated if it's a bad thing. You, 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 or at the very least, you assume that by explaining what the bad omen is, you can take steps to... Um, to, to nullify it and i mean it seems to me pretty clear that in daniel that's the sense of the interpretation if you think of like chapter four or something where nebuchadnezzar has seen this big tree um you know overspreading tree which is chopped down i mean it's painfully obvious what it means you know um i mean in one there's we even have a text when nebuchadnezzar refers to his own kingdom as this big green spreading tree it, it's like a really common symbol of a kingdom and how many kingdoms were there at large in the ancient Near East in Nebuchadnezzar's day? You know, so I don't think that what he wanted there was an explanation. He wanted a way of um, uh, of averting the consequences, and he didn't like Daniel's suggested means of averting them, i.e., break off from your sins, you know, clean your life up, and 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 then you won't collapse in this way. Um, and so, I think something to bear in mind in all this is exactly what what an interpretation is, and it, it's not just explanation i would suggest it, it's it's trying to avert what's been uh, foretold so in in the in the event in chapter two uh, there's no counsel about how to avert what's going what's contained in the dream is that is that a deviation from the normal kind of interpretation nebuchadnezzar would have expected so i mean either you supply the way of averting it in the interpretation or you just give the interpretation and it's then assumed that the next step is right. Now we work out how to avoid this. So it's not at all seen as like some fixed some fixed thing. Part of his purpose might be to have an interpretation, a telling of the dream that corresponds to the actual dream itself. Um, so that if the dream is truly a revelation from God, that the interpretation should be no less of a revelation and so just a flattering interpretation that could be concocted by any um, person who knew how to manipulate symbols and narratives that is not going to suffice in this case there's a an inbuilt test that he's applying peter you asked about why nebuchadnezzar made this demand uh, and maybe in the big picture it just seems like uh, what's breaking down is the relationship between the king and his wise men and magicians and all that. And so this is uh, a way for him to maybe I'm sure he doesn't do this on purpose. He's not himself trying to uh, um, break down the relationship, but it ends up doing that. He's, he, he himself says he's tired of them lying and uh, speaking corrupt words. And so this is a challenge to see whether they really are what they claim to be. It, it's at least that. And then also, I think Jim, in his commentary, I have it written down here in my notes, in my marginal notes, connects also his, his warning uh, and his, um, uh, his threat in verse 5 with Josiah mm -hmm. in 2 Kings 23, where uh, Josiah, of course, treats the false worshipers, treats the um, uh, false priests by uh, tearing them apart, by cutting them up in pieces, their, them and their idols, um, and tearing down their houses. Um, and so this may be, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is not himself motivated like Josiah was, but uh, he's doing something similar. He's going to be uh, dismembering the uh, part of his body here, part of his uh, part of his uh, court, uh, through this through this threat, uh, and Daniel, of course, is going to arise and 
and take their place. Mm-hmm. Right. This, of course, is the second of two narratives in which Daniel is set over against other groups of people, mm-hmm. and there is a test that distinguishes them and sets Daniel apart as the true article. I think another thing to notice here is the way in which, whatever the intentions of Nebuchadnezzar, the fact that Daniel receives the in, the dream and the interpretation provides a double witness to the content of the dream. This mm-hmm. is not just the king's dream. This is Daniel and the king's revelation that they have both independently received. And then they can confirm um, with each other in Daniel's telling of the interpretation and of the dream in a way that gives the content of the dream an added significance and surety that we would not otherwise have. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point because you have the king the king is given a dream and and that's a typical kind of association uh, you have dreams are a means of revelation to specifically to kings not exclusively but that's a, that's a recurring that's a recurring association in scripture but the dream that the king receives still requires some kind of input that the king himself doesn't have so you don't just have the the king king has a dream and that's the end of it pharaoh has a dream and he he doesn't know what it means. He needs a Joseph. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He needs a Daniel. You need the the king and the prophet together with their different modes of modes of revelation in order to understand what's been what's been given. We noted that a number of times as we went through Acts, didn't we? That God almost gave half a revelation to one person and half to mm. someone else. And so Cornelius's wasn't sufficient on its own, and nor was Peter. But the two men were put in contact with one another um, as a result of their respective visions and almost a similar thing with Paul and is it Ananias um uh and so um there seems to be that same sort of almost matchmaking going on here yeah yeah and I like Alistair's explanation as a kind of double witness uh, confirming witness that uh, secures the truth of what's been said as as the law requires a double witness is required for something to be established in court and you have the same kind of um, pattern that's required in these in these other situations outside of a courtroom I was going to say that the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's response to the to his magicians is pretty intense. I mean, he he initially tells them, uh, "Give me the dream, help me to understand the dream," and they ask and ask for uh, him to tell the contents of the dream. Then they'll provide the interpretation, uh, and the king is immediately threatening to tear them limb from limb, make their houses a rubbish heap. It seems like, as as Jeff suggested, there's already some background of distrust. That he knows that his magicians are not really uh, that they're you know speak with lying words. They're they're trying to be uh, they're trying to slip in interpretations rather than actually give something. And it's 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 pretty striking uh, their admission in verse ten that there's not a man on earth who can declare the matter for the king in as much as no great king has ever asked anything. And then verse eleven, uh, who else could declare it except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh? And you think. You know what the heck do we have magicians for in the first place? If they aren't in contact with some kind of power beyond themselves, what are they doing there? It's like there's a barrier between the gods who have this knowledge of secrets and the fleshly human beings who are who are not uh, privy to this. And of course, the contrast with Daniel is pretty striking because Daniel receives revelation that that there's not a barrier. It's there, if there's a barrier, it's a permeable barrier, and the God of Heaven reveals mysteries and dwells among mortal flesh with Daniel. Daniel himself admits that it's not because of his own power that he's been able to interpret it. So um, yeah, it, you can see why you can see why Nebuchadnezzar would get frustrated with these guys because that's, you know, that's why they're hired so that they could have some kind of insight into things that nobody else has insight into and some kind of contact with intelligence and wisdom and power that uh, that's beyond other people's. A story about the telling of dreams and, um, their interpretation, the practice of aniromancy might remind us, first of all, of the story of Joseph. And we've already seen some of the parallels between Daniel and Joseph. And it seems that this is a further one, just as Daniel tells the dreams of Pharaoh, Dan, or Joseph tells the dream of Pharaoh, so Daniel is able to tell the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And in that particular case, it seems that Joseph interprets the dream with wisdom that is given to him by the Lord, not necessarily a revelation 
which Daniel here seems to receive. He receives, at the very least, the knowledge of the dream itself, and then he's able to interpret it. But the connection between these two characters, I think, is developed on several occasions, not least in Daniel's rising to high authority and in the way in which he is able to foretell the future in these particular interpretations of dreams. Yeah, I think one one of the striking differences is uh, that uh, Daniel is one pillar of four within Babylon, not a not a not a solo act as Joseph is, uh, and uh, I mean both of them too are are providing a kind of safe safe haven for exiles that are coming. Joseph is uh, providing a safe haven for his brothers when they come and his father, uh, and eventually the whole nation of Israel is going to uh, be able to settle in the land of Goshen because of Joseph. And Daniel's providing the same kind of protective uh, haven for the exiles who are going to come from Jerusalem. And in that respect, it's significant that, like Joseph, he comes before the rest of the brothers. Hmm, right. Uh, Rush, speaking of dreams, R.J. Rushdoony spends a good bit of time in his little commentary on Daniel, uh, talking about how dreams reveal the um, the uh, dependence, the frailty, the weakness of human beings when we're at our most vulnerable and helpless in our sleep, God invades our consciousness. And uh, um, Rushdini connects this with the, the impact of Freud uh, and, his, uh, and his psychological theories, which involve, of course, interpretation of dreams. The impact of Freud in kind of shattering or at least upending some of the, uh, the enlightenment um, enlightenment conceptions of rationality. And, and they show that um, Freud is showing that there's this kind of uh, vast um, realm below the surface of consciousness that actually affects and determines um, uh, our conscious thought and our conscious actions in ways that we can't, that we can't control. Of course, Daniel and other places in the Bible are giving that reality a, a theological explanation that it's God himself who's invading our our consciousness uh, when we're when when we let down the guard in at, at night, um, but it you know, the the, the, the fa- just the phenomenon of dreaming is is uh, is a significant one uh, frequently in the Bible, and I think it it does at least point to that fact that we're not autonomous, self-standing beings, but we're we're porous to God's interventions. And the connection with visions with the nighttime and sleep. Um, suggest that during the day when our eyes are open and we're walking through the world and engaging in our regular activities, there's something um, like a sort of sleepwalking to that. Our true vision is, it when it is opened, it tends to be opened at the night and we realise that we are not actually in control of our fate, even though it may give us the illusion, our daily activities might give us that illusion. In actual reality, um, the control of our fate is of forces that are subconscious or forces that belong to the gods and the, the powers that exist in the world that we can't understand. And so the understanding within the ancient world that the gods or spirits reveal these things in dreams and, of course, in scripture, that the Lord is behind these things helps to frame our the activities of the day when we are awake and to recognize something of the limits of natural sight and the fact that there is a sort of wakefulness that we lack even when we are alert and seemingly awake. This has got to be especially terrifying for people with uh, who wield power for kings, for authorities. Um, and so the pharaoh in Egypt... Uh, realizes that he doesn't really have control over these seven years of famine that are going to follow the seven years of fatness. And um, and Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have any control over the fate of his kingdom. Um, and <laughs> so this, I think it's also, yeah, it's like Matthew, isn't it? Where Pilate, when he's about ready to pronounce judgment, um, his wife says, hey, mm-hmm. dude, I've had a dream about this guy. Um, and dreams mm-hmm. always seem to threaten the king's power, the king's, uh, at least his own perceived power. Uh, and here that's certainly the case. 
and, and it might also explain why Nebuchadnezzar was so um, consumed with rage, <laughs> because um, he was he he felt like something is being taken from him, um, and you know this is maybe a little bit too uh, psychological analytical, but you know when we have dreams, I it, this is really weird. I had a dream last night, and in this dream. Mm-hmm. I, I'm engaged in a certain sport that I, I love. I don't have to mention it. But I couldn't do what I ordinarily do. And I, I, I remember going through this dream over and over again. Well, I'll just tell you what it is. It's my, it's my competition shooting. I couldn't load my bullets mm-hmm. in the magazine. I couldn't insert the magazine into my pistol. I couldn't rack the slide and chamber around. I couldn't get to the targets. I mean, it was one thing after another. And, and I, I finally woke up in a sweat like, What's the deal here? Um, and so sometimes these dreams impact us exactly where we think we have so much power, so much, uh, so much agency, uh, and we find out. Well, you know, maybe we don't. Yeah. I thought, Jeff, you weren't going to tell us what the sport was, and you were going to make guess, or you were going to cut us all limb for limb. I had to because it's more vivid that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, pick, picking up on some of those things, it does feel to me like with the conquest of Israel and Judah, everything has started to fall apart in the palace, really. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar must have conquered other nations before, but suddenly he has conquered a different kind of nation and a different kind of god, and he's put temple vessels in his own temple. It remi- reminds me very much of Balaam's experience. You know, he, he's a, a practised guy um a, a prophet for hire he's done this before but suddenly he he's called to curse israel and he's touch with, in touch with a new reality and a new god he's he's never experienced before and i do just looking over this chapter get the feeling things are falling apart you know that the way in which the wise men react it feels like nebuchadnezzar is making from their point of view some unreasonable demand as if he's like changed the rules of the game somehow and kings aren't meant to ask these sorts of things there's just like an unspoken agreement you know you, you don't call our bluff and we won't call yours sort of thing and um uh, obviously then with a death decree um uh, for all the wise men to be killed yeah it, it really is things things are falling to pieces really yeah it reminds me of your comment early in the early in our series where you talked about the vessels in in Nebuchadnezzar's temple as a depth charge uh, it's already the lord's vessels are not really captured by uh, Nebuchadnezzar's God, but uh, uh, Yahweh is working behind the scenes and, and already beginning to to subvert and upset and undermine the the order of things in Babylon. And I, I think also that fits with the the response of Daniel and his friends. You have the the the, the court of the king is being uh, you have this conflict between the advisors and the king and a threat to destroy all of his advisors, all of his sorcerers and magicians. That's what's happening in the court. And Daniel goes to his own house with his three friends. So you have this, uh, the, the physical house where he goes to pray. And then you have this human house of the four corners that we've talked about. And uh, it's as if the Lord has established his own house of prayer in the midst of Babylon. We know that the vessels are there in the, in the temple of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's God. But uh, his human vessels are also there. And they're disrupting what's happening in Babylon by gathering in the house of Daniel as a house of prayer and turning to the God of heaven to to reveal the mystery. It's uh, a lot like also what's going on in Acts chapter 4. Everything is falling apart in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's world. Um, And in Acts chapter 4, everything's falling apart um, in Jerusalem and among the rulers of Jerusalem. And then once Peter and everyone is released, they go back into their house, and they all pray. And they pray to the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth, and they quote Psalm 2, and they recognize that there's something new that's happening. And so they're looking for, uh, looking into the future for something of a, something of a new Passover, something of a new, new, uh, uh, new world. And they get that assurance, of course, from God, just like Daniel and his friends do. Mm-hmm. What do you make of verse 16 when it says that Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time? A couple of questions come up there. Is that actually saying that Daniel 
was in the presence of the king, or we think of this as kind of a, an Esther kind of approach to the king, full full of danger. And then also, how come he can get away with asking for more time, and the and the sorcerers can't? Is that because Nebuchadnezzar trusts him, and he doesn't trust the others? Uh, is he is he asking for something different from the, what the others asked for? How, how how does he get more time? Seems to me that Daniel's difference is that he is saying, presumably, that he can perform what the king is requesting, whereas the others can't. And so um, he is granted time on the assumption that he's actually going to attempt to interpret the dream. Yeah, that's the way I've taken it too. Daniel is confident, and so he asked for a time, appoint me a time, and I'll come in and tell you what you need to know. Right. And is he doing that right in the presence of the king? Is that how you understand that? Only saying it, it does feel like that. It feels like he, I mean, it says he went in and requested the king. So it, it almost feels like he's entering a dangerous zone at that point. Do you, do you see some problem with that, Peter? Just, or just the contradiction with what has happened, what we've told earlier? No, it's, it wasn't a contradiction. It's just a, um, it, it's, in in Esther, it's built up. This is a this is a really dangerous thing, and and the threat of somebody coming unannounced before the king is uh, is mentioned, and so we know it's a very bold act. And uh, a Daniel, it seems to me, I, I agree with you all. It seems to me that Daniel was doing the same kind of thing, appearing before a king, uh, which is uh, which is not a not an everyday kind of thing for anyone to do, even even for uh, somebody who's a part of the company of wise men. So there's the same kind of boldness and courage that it takes for him to go in and and uh, and uh, make this declaration to the king. Uh, so I was just I, you know, trying to. Uh, I think that's right, but it's trying. It, it highlights something that isn't really built up in the text in the way it is in Esther. My impression is that he's not actually going into the king, but going into Ariok, as we see in verse twenty-four, and Ariok then informs the king. So. The role of Ariok is interesting. He, in some respects, might be like the um, cupbearer in the story of Joseph. And in other respects, he maybe reminds us of Potiphar as the captain of the king's guard, as someone who's a mediator between Joseph and um, the king, and now Daniel and the king. But in this case, he's also taking some of the burden upon himself. If he brings in Daniel to the king and Daniel utterly fails, presumably he's going to take some of the, the heat. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's an important detail, isn't it? I think it's something good to bear in mind here that basically Daniel gets his shot at the interpretation of this dream. You know, he gets appointed a time to appear before the king because he's good at his job. You know, he has proved himself and presumably he is studied hard and applied himself to what he's meant to be learning and he's shown himself before Nebuchadnezzar to be a wise guy and and it's not just that God has magically opened this door for him you know Daniel has earned by his studies the opportunity to be able to appear before the king and and do this and I just think that's an important principle to bear in mind as Christian employees of an organization you know if we if we are good at our job we, we, we will be given that kind of um, opportunity to be of use. And beyond that, it's not just a matter of being good at his job. I think we can see the way that, as in the case of Joseph, God grants Daniel favor mm-hmm. in the eyes of these Babylonian officials. So in the previous chapter, it's the chief of the eunuchs who actually gives Daniel and his friends a shot at the, um, at the food test that they want to undergo. And here... Um, Ariok, who is taking some of the burden and risk upon himself, and presumably he may he's not directly in the firing line, but he might be if he brings in this guy who falls flat on his face. But yet the Lord grants Daniel favor in his eyes too. Yeah, I, I think of the proverb: if uh, you see a man skilled in his work, uh, he will stand before kings. I think it's also important that throughout Daniel. Uh, Daniel is identified as somebody in whom are the is the spirit of the holy gods. Other people recognize that there's some kind of spirit in him that's uh, different from the spirits that that's in the the sorcerers and magicians. Otherwise, um, so that there uh, it's yeah it's 
it is, I think it is skill and ability in his work, his faithfulness in his work. Like as with Joseph, I mean, wherever Joseph goes, he, be, he ends up being in charge. The Lord grants him that success, but it also shows that he's done, uh, he's been faithful in, in, uh, in carrying out his responsibilities. Now, I think Jeff mentioned the, the Passover a moment ago, and I think it's worth pointing, uh, pointing to the, uh, the kind of Passover theme we have in verse 19. The mystery is revealed to Daniel in a night vision. This is another a nighttime transition. Uh, if Daniel doesn't get this vision, then he and his friends are going to be killed with the other magicians and sorcerers. Uh, and so this is a deliverance from death that takes place in the middle of the night, like so many other deliverances from death throughout the Bible. Uh, and and I, th- I think it's, I th- also think it's uh, imp- uh, interesting. I hadn't, I mean, I've, I've read Daniel many times over the years, but it never had struck me that Daniel was a composer of hymns or poems or psalms. But um, that that kind of stands out at the middle of this chapter, verses 20 through 23, after they all pray in this house of prayer, and the Lord grants them this deliverance through this night vision, then Daniel answers with this poetic psalm, uh, um, uh, uh, praising God for his wisdom and his, uh, his knowledge, his power, and then praising him particularly at the end of this at the end of this little psalm for granting that wisdom and power to to him to Daniel, so um, acknowledging the Lord, the God of heaven, is the one who possesses all the wisdom and power, but also as the one who shares it. Uh, he's not the God that the conjurers and magicians think he is, a God who doesn't dwell with mortal men. He's the God of heaven, but he does reveal mysteries and and confer this power on on Daniel. And the presence of the prayer at this point seems to serve a narrative purpose as well in that it has a different form to the rest of the text. It's poetic. It is something that heightens the tension. Um, It gives us a sense of Daniel's knowledge of this mystery, but we don't know it yet, and we're waiting for it to be revealed. It slows things down, and it is the condensed message of the chapter. It gives us a sense of what this is all about. It, it also reminds the readers or the hearers that Daniel is uh, fully tapped into the history of Israel. Um, Blessed be the name of God. Um, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Interestingly enough, though, uh, of course, the name Yahweh is not used. And I'm wondering, maybe James knows the answer to this. Is... Uh, the name Yahweh used in this Aramaic section of Daniel at all? I don't think so. I don't think it's even used in any of the Aramaic sections of the Bible. Just curious. Yeah, I Uh, I don't think it is. It's mm -hmm. um, God of heaven. It's other other names and phrases that are used in this section. The other Passover note here is in verse 25, Daniel makes an exodus from, if you will, the magicians and the sorcerers and the enchanters of the Chaldeans and is brought in haste to the king. Uh, And Arioch says that he is found among the sons of the exiles. And that harkens back to Exodus 4 when the Lord tells Moses to let to tell Pharaoh to let my son go. So there's more Passover references here as well. It's a quick detail. It's almost too obvious to mention in some senses, but um, Daniel has actually been trained as an interpreter of dreams. And I think that's something just worthwhile bearing in mind. I've been going through the book of Proverbs recently, and um, I've actually been going um, through it along with Alistair because he's done it in his um, readings recently. And Alistair makes the point, if I understand him rightly, he can correct me if not, but that um, Proverbs in the Bible are very similar to um, Proverbs in sort of ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. And in a sense, that's to be expected because they're not these kind of objects of divine revelation in the same way that much of scripture and much of the law is. It's kind of ground up. It's a sort of wisdom that's obtained through experience and empirical trial and error and through just a close study of the world and, and the way the world works. And so insofar as 
the Babylonians and the Israelites lived in the same world, you know, you could expect them, aided by God's natural revelation, to sort of distill the same sorts of principles. And you can imagine then that a lot of what Daniel was taught would be useful to him. Now, you know, the, the object of his dream is still uh, divine revelation. I, I'm not saying he does it apart from that, but I think it's just worth bearing in mind that th- this isn't just divine um, revelation. There would have been useful things um, he'd have learned. And I feel that this is just important to bear in mind generally. Um, I-, I hope Peter won't be em- embarrassed if I say this about him, but you know, I, I consider Peter, be- Peter to be a remarkable exegete of scripture and i'm sure a large part of that is that he's trained in english literature and has just had training um in 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 literary studies and so on and that obviously doesn't replace the need for prayer and careful study of scripture but it is the sort of thing that goes hand in hand with it and i think it's useful to see daniel's ministry like this as, as something that is um uh part fueled by his studies and what he's taught but um, guided all the time by the, the sovereign hand of God as well thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from Theopolis you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com we release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog so you'll want to make sure to look out for those you can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.